This is the Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And welcome to Bloomberg Business of Sports. It's the podcast where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports, talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. And that is certainly true today. Joining us today is four-time WNBA All-Star and 2016 WNBA champion, Elena Beard, now working in the world of venture capital. Welcome to the show. I know it is a topsy-turvy time, to say the least. And I guess I want to start by asking you what it's been like to look at the sports world and the broader world now as an ex-player you're in the venture capital business now in the working world in the different sort of uh, working world uh, what do you see out there it's been a lot it's been a lot to comprehend um, I think um, not think I know that this is the first time in 20 years that I'm, I'm outside of that sports bubble and I, I tend to think that we're we're somewhat sheltered and, and have our blinders on. Um, for the most part, because because of our life has been sort of one way for so long. Um, and, and maybe I can only speak for me as a, as a personal experience, but now that I'm in a corporate world, I, I tend to see things a, a lot differently in terms of um, the conversations and the dialogues that are being had. Um, but it, it's been a huge learning experience. 2020 has been an unfortunate year in, in so many ways. Um, but I'm, I'm confident that we will, you know, once certain things are in place, like a vaccine, um, activism continue to, to progress as it is, um, we, will, we will see a lot better days. So, Elena, I, I have to ask you, because, you know, you're not playing sports at the moment, but basically no one's playing sports uh, at the moment. Right. I mean, as you look at that from the outside, you look at the effect of this pandemic on the the sports world, especially the basketball world, which is figuring out it looks like a way to come back, although that feels mm-hmm. even in jeopardy at this moment, given some of the spike in coronavirus cases, especially mm-hmm. in Florida. What do you think about sort of a world without sports, e- even temporarily? What does it feel like to you, and, and what does it mean more broadly? It, it, I, I think the key word in, in that question is that it's temporary. And I think People need to be patient mm. um, because we can we can force our hand and continue to push and push when in reality every delay, in my opinion, as cliche as it sounds, is for the best. So if it means, and I know a lot of money and capital is involved, but if it means taking off from sports until a vaccine is in place and tested and proven and widely distributed, that's what we have to do. I don't like the idea of putting money before human life. And I think that's what we're doing, although it may sound a bit extreme and a a bit dramatic. Attempting to have a season and putting the pressure on an athlete to decide is, is, I I think it's extremely harsh, harsh because we're competitive. We love this game. We have a passion for it. And for us to say no to it, it's kind of like, being a traitor or a letdown to, to yourself, but also to your teammates, to those that are playing. So it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic going on here. Um, and obviously the league are attempting to take all of the right protocols to, to sort of get everyone back to playing, but I can't imagine it turning out good. And I'm not an expert. Obviously I, I follow the news. I, I read a lot, but I comprehend and take in what's, I want, um, but 
I don't think it's a good decision to push forward with a season in any sport other than golf, perhaps, or tennis. Uh, Elena, I, I know you just recently retired, and the plan for the WNBA uh, is to go down to uh, the IMG Academy in Bradenton mm-hmm. in, in, in early July. And I'm sure you're still in touch with many of your ex-teammates and the women around the league. What do you think their comfort mm-hmm. level is with this with this concept and this idea? The, you know, that's sort of what I just – they're they're torn. A lot of individuals are torn. I think, um, and I think players that you know have maybe more responsibilities in terms of having you know kids. I think you know they're leaning more towards not playing because that's crucial, right? Um, am I going to bring my kid into this environment where the risk is potentially higher? Um, and so that's a decision that everyone's sort of grappling with. I think. Uh, I think, and and. and I haven't spoken to many people, but just my take on reading and, and, and sort of listening is that I think a lot of younger players are more open to sort of playing and, and getting back to a, a little sense of, of normality here. Um, but like I said, I'm not sure that I agree with it one way or the other. I mean, I'm not sure that I agree with the, the fact that, you know, you're asking these players to make a decision and, and to potentially put their lives in harm's way. So, Elena, let's talk about the other crisis that this country is facing and and a reckoning that I think we can all agree is long overdue. Uh, Many would say, and I would agree with this, centuries overdue. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I do wonder, as someone who has been outspoken, someone who has lived in the South, as I did, who went to a prestigious university, who played at the professional level, now is working in Silicon Valley. What's the lens through which you see this current moment that the country is facing? It's it's definitely a different lens than what I have seen or how I've seen um, issues, similar issues in the past. Um, You know, I, I alluded to it early on in this conversation that I've been in my sports bubble for 20 years, and I think the the internal conflict that I have with myself is that have I ignored that casual racism um, that I may have experienced, or may have I been exempt from it because of who I am and what I do? Um, so that's been sort of an internal conflict of mine. Um, but now, just being outside of that bubble and being the only person of color are the only black person out of 50 in SCB capital has forced me to see things a little differently. It's forced me to listen to the dialogue a little differently. It forced me to not ignore what I'm hearing. Um, But more importantly, it motivates me to be impactful and to create a sustainable impact um, in in whatever way that I can. Um, What I I have to, it's, I, I struggle with sort of putting what I'm feeling into words because it's the first time I think I've just been affected maybe by it as much. Um, but I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I grew up where, honestly, I'm at home now and I can walk outside of my yard and Confederate flag is still flying um, in each direction, um, maybe a half a mile down the road one way and less than a half a mile down the road the other way. Um, So those are things that I think our country has to come together on, get better at and and realize that it's not about, um, it's not about the color of your skin. Um, It's about moving forward 
and unite it as a country. But this is extremely hard to to handle. Um, I know that I, you know, started going on and on about it, but what I started to realize is that my reality is that I'm a mother of a brown son. I am a sister of a black brother. I am a daughter of a black father, father and an aunt of a black nephew. And their reality is completely different than what many of us face um, in this world. And it's, it's kind of hard to, to sort of accept. Um, but it, it's time to take action, and I think a lot of us are right now. And what do you see going on around you in in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. uh, Elena? When you're when you're back there, because you know we've yeah. written a lot about this, and a lot has been talked about that Silicon Valley, for as progressive as it appears to be, sometimes yeah. you know has some of the same problems that we see in the broader country, and in some ways even worse. Bloomberg had a very powerful story that that you may have seen about you know, black entrepreneurs and the struggles that they've had in securing funding, mm-hmm. um, securing venture capital funding amid, uh, you know, in Silicon Valley and sort of in, in the broader uh, technology world, do you hear the right conversations at least starting to happen? How much work needs to be done in the technology and VC space, in your estimation? There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, the conversations are extremely uncomfortable, right? Um, I, I think people are learning how to have those conversations. And the question I always ask is, why now? Why is this moment different? Why have you waited so long to put a focus and an emphasis on helping everyone? Um, but it, it, it's, it's interesting because Silicon Valley has the, the power to change whenever they want to because the capital, the influx of capital within that industry is unreal to me. Um, so what I've seen is that a lot of people initially wanted to take action fast. And they wanted to take action from a monetary perspective, and I'm not sure that that is the right way to go. Um, I think one thing that I've, I've stayed steady with is that it's important to listen to, to what is going on around you, to educate yourself first, to take a step back after that education, after that listening, and then take action. Um, and I think after it has settled down a little bit, I, I, I feel that's what people are starting to do. Um, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting dynamic. Um, I've sat back and I've watched um, how everything works. Uh, but I, I do feel that this is a bit different. Elena, I know you're involved in a uh, program called Lift, which is uh, sort of uh, mm-hmm. parallels parallels some of the conversation we've just had over the last five minutes or so. Why don't you just enlighten mm-hmm. us a little bit about uh, how you're doing this and how it's going to impact women yeah. and women of color? Well, I, I think that's what we're 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 trying to figure out right now. But the the gist of lift is just it's an it's an LP limited partner general partner matching concept, um, to where you know obviously we have our group of our, our emerging managers team that goes out and they vet these new emerging managers. So I think that's where the change will come, um, because there is a focus on women, there is a focus on pe- there on funds that are led by women, on funds that are led by people of color. Um, so with that being said, you know, the left team will have a direct impact on helping, you know, to potentially introduce those limited partners to to those to those funds. And how have the conversations, you know, one of the interesting things, Elena, that I've been hearing over the past few weeks is 
akin to something you said a few minutes ago, which is suddenly everybody's having this conversation. How do you mm-hmm. sort of sort out in some ways the those with good intentions and those with, you know, sort of fleeting intention, if you get my drift, you know, people who are who are really committed to seeing this through, because ultimately, and you know this far better than I, this is going to take a long time. This is hard work. This mm-hmm. is something that people mm-hmm. have to be deeply committed to. How do you sort of figure out who's really in it to win it, for for lack of a better term? I, I think it's I think it's premature to sort of say that I have it figured out now. Yeah. Because first of all, I've only been at SCB and in that in that world for for three months. So I'm still learning individuals. I'm still learning a genuine relationship from a transactional relationship where I've come from a world where all of my relationships have been extremely genuine, right? Um, I've been able to travel around the world, and, and, and I have best friends from, from multiple countries. Um, and those are, those are relationships that I'm extremely proud of. Um, but I'm still figuring it out in this new world of mine. Um, but I, I think the telltale sign will be um, a year from now if the conversations are still going. Are we still being as active? Are we still making direct impact that we want to, the direct impact that we want to make? Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, reading, and, and, you know, I think one of the suggestions that, that several people have made is, is to report your metrics. Re- keep up um, with what you're doing. Make your metrics um, public. Um, and I think those companies or those individuals that are willing to put themselves out there to be as transparent as possible will be the ones that come out on top as, as the, the most genuine individuals who, who truly want to see this world change. Well, I couldn't agree more. You know, this, you know, when you talk to someone all the time, you say, hey, if you need anything, just give me a call. And then, you know, you kind of really mm-hmm. don't mean it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like it's, it's mm-hmm. for the moment. And, and I just don't right. want to – I don't want this – what's happening now to be just for the moment to go away in a week a month or three months i want this to last in perpetuity how do we make that happen it feels it feels different i'm not sure if that that was a question obviously it was a statement but um, (laughs) i I think we're all trying to figure out how to make it happen right um i what i was with my father i i got home to louisiana um two days ago and then my father and i took a drive and it's something that we always do just to to sort of have, you know, conversation. But my dad said something that just really hit home. He said, these young people are different. They have it going on. And I was like, what do you mean, Dad? He was like, I just think our generation dropped the ball on this, dropped the ball on activism. Um, and I thought that was an interesting, interesting perspective um, coming from one generation um, to, 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 this net, to the generation now that is sort of a huge part of this movement and, and is leading this country in the right direction. Wow. Do you agree with that? I mean, did it did it make you stop and think? Because you've seen both. I mean, you sort of sit between them in in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What do you see that's different with with young people right now? I I, I have to agree with I have to agree with it. Um, you know, it, the young people now aren't aren't taking no for an answer. Uh, one one person that I can recall is, is Coco Golf. Yeah, uh, I was listening to a speech that she was giving. Her family organized a rally in, in her hometown um, in Florida. And she said that her grandmother mentioned, it's unfortunate that my 16-year-old granddaughter is still fighting for what I fought for 50 years ago. Um, so that, to me, tells me that the youth, is, they're our future. 
right? And so it means everything to me, which is why I actually joined the, the it's not Mamba Sports Academy anymore, it's now Sports Academy, but I joined their advisory board because they have a platform of over 700,000 youth. And I 100% believe that we could figure out a way to make a, a sustainable impact um, within within the youth uh, the, the youth frame of things. Um, they're fearless. They have a voice on top of a voice, and that voice is social media, and they don't mind using it. And so I'm I'm really happy and interested to to see where this goes. Well, one of the greatest compliments uh, someone can have bestowed upon them is uh, you made a difference. And, uh, and from mm-hmm. my conversation with you, Elena, right here, you are going to make a difference in this world. And I, I congratulate you, you and, and, um, and wish you all the best. Thank you so much. That's, that's an ultimate goal of mine. It's just a matter of figuring out how um, I, I want to move forward with it. I think this is an interesting platform that a lot of us, need to um, to take advantage of and in terms of, of making a, an impact on change for this world. Elena, I did have one more question for you, sort of keying mm-hmm. off of something that you that you just said about Coco um, and, and thinking mm-hmm. about your background as an athlete and, and thinking about the fact that professional basketball for, for men and women, and, you know, and I'm thinking of, you know, LeBron and and others who have really galvanized around this issue and basketball players seem to have been a little further ahead in in some ways uh, in terms of activism and if I think back to mm-hmm. Eric Garner if I think back to a lot of the things that have been forward thinking when it comes to the NBA and the WNBA I wonder what you make of that and and why you think basketball at both the collegiate and the professional level has been has been a place where this has thrived. I'm not sure that that I that I have an answer to that. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe because a, a lot of the basketball players have a bigger platform. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they feel that they have more control in their league, or maybe it speaks to the leadership of of the NBA and the WNBA, which allows not allows but but understands that, that these athletes have their individual platforms. And as long as they're representing themselves and the league in, in the right way, um, why, why muffle them? Why, why, why tell them not to use what they have? Um, but I'm not sure that I have an answer to that, yeah. um, a clear answer to that just yet. It's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I, I yeah. do. I, I think you're right. I, if I may, like, I, mm-hmm. I do. I do think you're right that there is a sense, and I think more and more people are getting this sense that you want to be on the right side of history at, at this moment. Mm-hmm. And I think you, I, I think the league, uh, the leagues, in in many ways, don't. Uh, they don't, as you say, they don't want to get in the way of that. Elena, let me ask you about making the transition from uh, the WNBA. You played high level college basketball at Duke. And how did your experience being a member of a team, playing professional basketball, prepare you to jump into the venture capital world? Yeah. Well, first of all, it is it, it, you understand that that you know how to be a part of a team. I think that's the most important thing. And what I'm understanding, you know, being at a corporation like um, Silicon Valley Bank, um, it, it's so many different entities. It's so many different teams within one big team. Um, so knowing how to just sort of guide your team within your team and then focus on on the on broader perspective, I think is is a huge advantage uh, for me. 
Um, but it, on top of that, you know how to handle relationships. You know how to communicate. You know all the all the intangible things to do to, to make a team successful. So that's been uh, something that I, for now, can, can add value to and bring to the table. I know coming in, um, it's tough because I'm a rookie all over again. And I, it's, 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 it's a brand new world, and I'm trying to figure it all out as I go. So this is the first time in a long time that I've been at my most vulnerable state, and it is a challenge. Um, but with that, you understand what it means to, to succeed by progression, um, and that's what I'm currently doing, although I'm starting all over. How do you choose this path, Elena, the venture capital world? Uh, it, that is a, I, I dare say, an especially aggressive next career. You know, a lot of times you mm-hmm. see athletes, you know, go into something, you know, a little more sort of rainmakery, you know, like sort of <laughs> leveraging uh, some of their relationships. I mean, this is a, as you've alluded to, a high octane world, high pressure. <laughs> is that just sort of how you're wired? It, I think it is how I, how I am wired. It's, it's what I've done my entire life. Um, I, I came from Shreveport, Louisiana, um, and from here I chose to go to Duke University, understanding what those challenges would be on top of the academic um, load, workload that I, that I knew I would have. It was the fact that I was leaving my family, who I was extremely close to, going 16 hours away. Um, you know, and I, I laugh about it now, but I, I cry literally every single day uh, for two consecutive years um, at Duke. Every time my family would come and have to leave, we were we were just that close. So um, I, I knew that would be a challenge, and I accepted that. But then, um, on top of that, you know, I in 2010 I had a potential career-ending injury, and. It, the doctor came in on April 20th, I vividly remember it, uh, April 20th of 2010, and said, hey, you have a you have a 90% chance that you'll never play again. And in that moment, I, I started doing rehab in my head. Um, so that I, so transitioning to the venture capital space was, was no different. Um, I knew what I was getting into coming in. Um, I knew it would be a challenge. I knew it would be a steep learning curve. Um, and that's what I'm going through now, and it is tough. But in terms of how I kind of uh, chose the venture capital space, I've always been entrepreneurial-minded. Uh, um, and it started in college, actually, when I started getting deep into sort of franchising and following the, tr- the trend of franchising. Um, I relate it with the concept of franchising because it's a blueprint that's given to you, and your job is to follow that blueprint and do it to the best of your ability. So I'm confident in that I can I could do that. Um, and with that, I eventually ended up owning um, a mellow mushroom with with a good friend of mine, Marissa Coleman, and, and a few other people um, in Roanoke, Virginia. But I, that's a long-winded way of saying that I eventually met um, a mentor of mine. His name is Dan Levington. He's deeply rooted into the venture capital space. He's a Duke alum. He's the uh, managing partner of Mevron, um, uh, Mevron Venture Capital. And he challenged my perspective on brick and mortar. And that's all that it took um, for me to sort of start taking the deeper dive into venture capital and thinking outside of the franchise realm of things. Um, and once that conversation happened about two, two and a half years ago, it, there was, it was no turning back um, because startups is what I've always been interested in. I just never knew how to get involved in it. And once I got my foot in the door, um, I, I kept that, my, my, my foot sort of, I, I kept the pace going and I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I, the passion is continuing to grow. 
Um, and I know that eventually I'll, I'll get to where I need to be. All right. I have to say, Mike, I almost stopped this entire interview just a minute ago when she said Mellow Mushroom, because if you haven't experienced Mellow Mushroom pizza, I grew up in the South. It was born in Atlanta. And I tell you, I live in New York now. And every single time I go South, Elena, I take my kids and my wife there, wherever there's a Mellow Mushroom. It's like the best pizza on the planet. Anyway, so like we almost just like went off and went down a huge (laughs) rabbit hole here. I'm getting hungry. Pizza. But it's, it's so, like, I, I own the franchise and I understand the product, which is why, you know, we, we decided to, to, to go forward with it. But it's very hard walking in and not touching it, right? Yeah. Especially when I was, you know, in season, had a diet, a strict diet that I was sticking to. Um, it's very hard not to eat a whole pizza when I'm there. Oh, my God. They have this dressing. My, I mean, I, I am going to go down a rabbit hole. You're like, yeah. they have this <laughs> this salad dressing that I always would order like a little bit extra. You dip the crust. They use molasses in the crust. Like, I am long mellow mushroom in any case. All right. Back to, back to the interview. Um, I love it. Well, if you hear sil- if you hear silence on this end of the phone, I'm really hungry right now, so <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be stepping away from this interview. <laughs> hey, Elena, yeah. let me ask you this: You know the old saying, you know, some athletes just can't handle life when the cheering stops; um, mm-hmm. they're lost. They, they're, they're just so tra- tra- traditional. I mean, uh, trained that uh, they play, they hear the crowd, and all of a sudden, when it ends, they're lost. They don't have a compass. What what, what was inside of you? Was it your uh, your family upbringing? Was it your education? the Duke that kid that turned you into an entrepreneur and eventually a venture capitalist well you know I I, I want to touch on that point because I, I think it's a topic that's that's not touched in terms of the transition of an athlete um, to, to the real world it's, it's, it's a traumatic um, event um, and I was aware enough to know that and to understand that my career was going to be over you know as, as unfortunate as my injury was in 2010 and not to say I didn't think about it before then, but I, it just it, it accelerated that thought process. But in 2010, when I had a 90% chance of never playing again, I had to start thinking um, a little deeper into the next phase of my life. And I just think this topic should be spoken about a lot more. But I think athletes don't like being vulnerable and as transparent as they should be. Um, because a lot of our stories are the same. And I think it's important for other athletes to hear it while they're still actively playing. Um, but in terms of my mindset and, and how I knew um, I had to prepare, it, it, it stems from my, my upbringing, yes. My, my family, or my mom and dad are hardworking individuals. Um, for as long as I've known my mom to, to, to sort of have a job, she's always worked with mentally challenged individuals. Um, they've always worked for someone. Um, it wasn't until about maybe eight years ago that my dad eventually owned his own business. But for 22 plus 22 years, he he's a truck. He was a truck driver for for a company. Now he's his own contractor. Um, so just seeing sort of the work ethic of my parents and and sort of having that motivation that I want to eventually take care of my parents, tell them to go home, go on vacation, do whatever you want to do. Um, was always the driving force in what I did after basketball. Um, so it, it was it was always a constant thought um, in terms of what I wanted to do. So Elena, I just didn't know what I didn't ahead. know sort of what avenue I was going to take. It it slowly um, developed, but now it's here. 
Elena Beard, thank you so Absolutely. much. It really was a pleasure. Thank you for being uh, so candid and thoughtful mm-hmm. uh, with us. And this is an extraordinary time in in both uh, terrible and and maybe hopeful ways. And we really appreciate mm-hmm. you uh, sharing some time with us. No, thank Thanks you for so- having me, guys. And you can catch our Business of Sports podcast every week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me on Twitter at LynchyWCBB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.